So this morning I want to continue with the third talk exploring uh, and hopefully supporting our ethical practice. The first talk was on October 1st, and that was uh, giving an overview of our ethical practice, particularly following the five lay precepts, which are variants really of non-harming. And we also renewed the ethical precepts in a uh, brief ritual where we took those on. Uh, often we do, we, we do that for the whole month. So if anyone who is there, they're still operative. <laughs> and then the, the second of the gatherings was during what we call Earth Care Week. And that's when I was quite specific and uh, looked at the ethical precepts and, and generally our practice in terms of the large collective issue of uh, climate change, or what we might call climate disruption, and gave a talk called The Four Noble Truths of Responding to Climate Change, which is, uh, goes into that issue as an example of a very uh, pressing ethical concern you know, for all of us and all species and future beings and so forth. And both of those talks, for those who aren't aware, are on the Dharma Seed website. And you can listen to them. And I haven't yet put up the PowerPoint. I'm still working on that. That was there for the climate change. But you could listen to that. And it has you know, slides on the basic uh, science and so forth. Um, so today, I want to continue. And I want to... Um, ask the question, how can our ethical practice be alive? How can we have our ethical practice be a place of learning and development and growth of insight? How can we see what the growing edge is of our ethical practice? And I say that partly from the recognition that for many of us, our ethical practice isn't the most alive part of our spiritual practice. It might be meditation or it might be something more psychological, seeing my reactive patterns and so forth. And in fact, for some of us, we might think, I don't directly harm anyone. I don't directly kill, I don't steal, I'm an ethical person, end of story. What's there for me, you know, in terms of living ethically? And we might be drawn here to Spirit Rock, particularly by the inner work, the inner inquiry, the meditation, the cultivation of wisdom. And what I want to point to are ways that we can see our ethical practice actually in a different light. To see that we may have been underestimating the power of ethical practice. And I want to do this um, by asking questions and really inviting very personal responses that by the end of the session we might have a better sense of here is my edge of learning or growth in my ethical practice. And it can be totally different for different people. So that's my hope today. And also for me to enliven my own ethical practice. So just to return to what those practices are, traditionally there were ethical guidelines for both monks and nuns on the one hand and lay people on the other. There are a whole set of monastic practices called the Vinaya, which literally means that which leads away from remorse. And traditionally, ethical, what we call ethical practice or sila is the word in the original language. And I'll actually suggest that one of the reasons that we maybe 
find our ethical practice not so alive is be, even because of the language, the word ethics may suggest for many of us, partly because of the Western context, following rules or being a good boy or good girl and so forth. And that we may even need to use a different language with our practice. So traditionally, there are these many guidelines, well over 200 for monks and nuns, involving both very central precepts like non-harming, not taking that which is not given, and so forth, but also hosts of very minor precepts like the nature of one's betting, you know, whether one handles money, that sort of thing. That's part of the guidelines that are there for, for the monks. For lay people, as we know, most of us know, there, there are five ethical guidelines or principles of practice. And I thought I would read these now and be rather brief on them. But as I read them, listen and see what strikes you as you hear these as a place where you might consider that there's room for growth or see what sparks you. You hear that and say, oh, I could develop more in that. Okay, that's, the, that's part of my intention. So I'll read these. These are the five traditional lay precepts. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from the taking of life. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept not to take that which is not given. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from sexual misconduct. Which we generally interpret as um, activity which harms ourselves or others. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from unwise speech. For the sake of training, I undertake the precept to abstain from intoxicants that cause heedlessness. So these are the five precepts which we renewed and went into more depth on three weeks ago. And they, as I said, are really at their core about not harming ourselves or others and taking that as the basis of our, of our lives. Um, they also, and perhaps the word training that I gave earlier, suggests that they can be more than simply uh, following rules. That they're not, and this is where I think some of our Western cultural conditioning may get in the way. We often think of ethics as about following rules, following certain guidelines, following certain principles. And the context of training is very crucial here for the ethical precepts, that we are really training to uh, develop in goodness, as, as the first lines of the Metta Sutta say, this is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who practice the way of peace. And it's really, in a way, uh, these are training guidelines and they could be said, the guidelines could be said to express how an awakened <coughs> being lives. An awakened being lives according to these precepts where those precepts aren't a matter of external rules, but they're a matter of, of internalized understanding. So sometimes we think of the guidelines as more external. Again, they're strong tendencies, and some of that can be developmental. You know, you know as, as children, they may be more external initially. 
the ethical teachings we get from our parents or from the culture. But as we get more mature, we internalize them more. They become more how we are. There's another, there's another way that the, there can be some confusion about the ethical precepts and not make so clear that they're really about training, which is that in the original languages, they're expressed negatively. All of the precepts I read are about abstaining from this. They're about not harming and so forth. And I mention this from time to time, but my understanding from a scholarly point of view is that some of the negatively expressed words in the original languages actually have a lot of positive connotations. A word like ahimsa, which many of you know because it's used in the traditions of nonviolence from Gandhi and so forth. A word like ahimsa doesn't simply mean nonviolence, but it also means bringing love into these situations. That's why nonviolence is, a, is, is not a great um, translation in, in Western languages. And I, I always think of in Brazil, they refused to translate nonviolence when they were, whoever was translating it was bringing it into the Portuguese language for, you know, Brazilian advocates of nonviolence. And they, uh, they didn't want a um, only negative word, and so they translated it as the equivalent of it. It comes out in Portuguese, I think. It's something like passionate resistance. <laughs> something like that. I, I may have that a little wrong, but it's something that has passionate in the title, which may be appropriate and maybe for those who know people from Brazil. <laughs> okay. Hope that wasn't overly stereotyping, but here we go. So, so the 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 um, the precepts really have to do not just about training to abstain from this or that, but to develop in certain qualities. And we could say that the ethical we could frame the training in sila or ethical practice. And maybe we do need a better word. It's really about committing to develop. For example, in the context of non-harming, it means to to develop in love and care. The precept on not taking that which is not given means to really develop in the quality of generosity in addition to seeing where there's greed. And so these these, uh, guidelines are really about developing love, care, skillful action, generosity, uh, compassion, and so forth, and committing one's life to developing those. And so it's, a, it's another way to frame what we're doing ethically. It's that I want to develop these qualities to a high degree, which is a little bit different from just making sure I don't mess up ethically, right? And you can see how when you have the focus on the qualities, it suddenly is a little different horizon for, for what we're doing. And so another question, I'll from time to time ask inquiry questions right here. Another inquiry question would be, if you understand the ethical precepts in terms of the development of core ethical qualities, which qualities do you most want to develop as part of your ethical practice? Just take a moment to consider, just for yourself, not going to have to share this with anyone. Yeah, what qualities are you most committed to develop? And this can be another way of framing our ethical practice. Another way in which developing ethically is very much a training is that it's not about being perfect according to following rules, but we understand that in a way we always fall short. Right? We commit to being loving and then a moment comes up with a significant other and we're definitely not loving. And being committed to training can go hand in hand with continually learning and seeing where we fall short. And so the 
emphasis on learning and development, again, it's maybe not how we often think of ethics, where we, again, may frame it in terms of, uh, may frame it in terms of following rules or being good, and, and not so much as uh, involving inner development. And that, that emphasis on inner development also uh, is connected with the way that in the tradition, ethics isn't separate from meditation and the cultivation of wisdom. That it, uh, it goes hand, ethical practice goes hand in hand with our inner development, with our mindfulness. And this, this is, when you consider ethical practice, this, this may be obvious. You know, if I, if I take uh, on an ethical precept, for example, not to harm or to develop care, that practice and that commitment will be tremendously supported by my mindfulness, which tracks my moment-to-moment thoughts and and, and, say, and I say at the beginning of the day, I am committed to non-harming. And then I go for breakfast and I have harming thoughts. <laughs> or maybe even I notice, oh, I'm eating meat. What about that? You know? Is that inconsistent with my commitment not to harm? You know, and so forth. And so it's really to uh, take everything as learning. And to track, you know, but particularly to track our thoughts and minds because the seeds of harming are in our thoughts and our emotions. And if we can track them, we're able to um, intervene before we act. And so you can see how mindfulness becomes so crucial. Her wisdom and the cultivation of wisdom where we might, for example, really look in deeply as in the teaching about the roots of suffering, we might really see what are the causes of suffering, my suffering and those of others. And maybe we can see that they're, in the traditional teachings, they're connected with self-centered grasping, or we might say self-centered aversion. And as we are supported by the wisdom teachings, we might be interested in looking where do I have a narrow and a kind of thick sense of self that's really has me very opposed to others. And I might inquire into that. That might be part of my inquiry. Some of the ethically, very ethically developed sages might say that to harm another when we really see clearly is like my left hand harming my right hand, which we wouldn't consider, because there's a different sense of identity when we really develop that wisdom aspect. We also looked, especially uh, the last two times, at how the ethical uh, guidelines and these questions about not harming are not just about face-to-face interactions, but they can also be considered uh, to have social uh, dimensions. You know, in, and I, I mentioned how this is true both in the traditional teachings and probably more so by a number of contemporary interpreters of ethical life, that with the Buddha we find patches, passages like this. Uh, this is in the Sutta Nipata, summarizing the guideline on non-harming, but bringing in that it's not just about my behavior, but it's also about how I relate to others. And this is the line. Let one not destroy life, nor cause others to destroy life, and also not approve of others' killing. So there are these two aspects here where we, in a sense, uh, take responsibility beyond my my own behavior, our own behavior. We take responsibility for what's going on in our communities or in our, in our world. That starts, as, as we've seen, that starts to make an ethical commitment quite challenging, right? And there are a lot of challenges to that. And I'll, I'll come back to that, that point. And here are some, um, let me give one or two more traditional ones. Uh, the Buddha at times 
tried to stop wars. That's in the text. That's in the history. And there was a famous king, King Ashoka, who lived a few hundred years after the time of the Buddha, who prohibited, this is like uh, the third century, uh, this is the third century BCE, before the Common Era, he prohibited the killing of animals. And he also prohibited capital punishment. at that time. And in, in our more contemporary world, we have people like Thich Nhat Hanh also giving a very social interpretation of, of our ethical guidelines. He says, we cannot support any act of killing. No killing can be justified. But not to kill is not enough. We must also learn ways to prevent others from killing. We cannot say, I am not responsible. They did it. My hands are clean. If you were in Germany during the time of the Nazis, you could not say, they did it, I did not. That starts to offer some challenges for our, precept, for our precepts, because we know that we are people in virtually every society live with certain degrees of injustice that are there in the ordinary workings of the society. And if we have an ethical commitment, are we also committed to try to stop harming? And some of us may be drawn in that way. You know, if we think of, um, if we think of, you know, multiple, really, uh, multiple kinds of uh, systems, some of us may Look, for example, at the um, killing of animals for various purposes. And a number of Buddhist practitioners find this to be ethically problematic. Or we might look at something, we might look at something um, related to other systems, you know. Um, you know so let me, let me make one or two more comments about Animals, this is, again, this is something that we, we, you know, when I've worked in groups with people around the precepts, some people really felt themselves really called to look at this issue in their own behavior. That This is from the language of the Buddha. We abandon violence in respect of all beings, both those which are still and those which move. We abandon the onslaught on breathing beings without stick or sword, scrupulous, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. So for some people, that might be an edge in your practice. Do, how can I take, make a commitment to non-harming and have a certain amount of harming built into my life? You know, and, and there are complications. It's not always an easy issue. But for some people, that's an edge. For some people, the edge might look to other ways that there's injustice in the society. You know, we've, we talked um, two weeks ago about climate change, which is causing harm now and portends tremendous harm for uh, the future, maybe not very uh, long from now, and is a, is a real issue in terms of ethical responsibility for future generations, even for children, grandchildren, right? If one has an ethical commitment, might one be consider that as, as part of one's commitment? And, I, and I'm not saying these things to cultivate a sense of overwhelm. You know, and what I'm going to suggest is that we actually find our own, our own what, what calls us. And it, it's not going to be everything. <laughs> it, it might be one systemic issue. That I want, that I feel drawn to address, because there are many of them. There are issues, you know. There are issues. There's still issues of racism, particularly in relationship to African Americans, where I think, uh, you know, kind of horrifyingly, 20% of children in the U.S. are in poverty. For African Americans, it's 40%. We also know that one out of three African men will be incarcerated at one point in his life. 
much of which is, is because of unjust application of laws. We know that a lot of that's because of drug laws, and we know that the, the, rate, of, uh, you know, the rate of drug use is about the same for African-Americans and non-African-Americans, and African-Americans are incarcerated at three times the rate, even though the use is the same. What's that about? Right? And we know, and this is not just in our society, there's, there are forms of injustice. And so if we are ethical persons, do we just uh, stand aside or live our lives? You know? And you know, there was, um, I was reading a book by uh, Tim Wise, which is a very interesting book. It's, it's on racism. It's called White Like Me. <laughs> and he was, he was talking about some of his own background. He grew up in the South in Nashville, and he was, he was interested in what his, he's, about, he's in his early 40s, and he was interested in what his grandparents uh, were doing. His mother was, as a young woman, was very interested. She came of age in the 60s, but he was interested in what his grandparents were, were doing at that time. And he, as far as he could find out, they really weren't involved. They were just involved with daily life. He said, as far as I know, the only reaction my grandmother ever had to the civil rights movement in Nashville, where they grew up, was to express her concern about shopping downtown during the sit-ins. And he, you know, he was saying sometimes it was like, it was like this. And he may, this is, this is from the text, uh, from the, what was happening in the 19, early 1960s. Kids dying in Mississippi? Got to remember to call Betty and make my hair appointment. Water cannons being turned on black people in Alabama? Got to pick up the dry cleaning and grab a few things at the grocery. And so forth. So um, there can be a way that uh, for large numbers of people, there is a kind of uh, ethical, we might say ethical complacency or even a kind of uh, uh, removal from being connected, you know, partly because of ignorance. Some people don't actually know. Maybe our, you know, our uh, news media and our educational sources aren't always the best in letting us know what's going on. But there are these, there are these uh, dangers of a kind of um, ethical complacency, which, which can be there um, for us. Um, sometimes it's connected with, oh, well, I'm not there, you know. Uh, I have these privileges which protect me from the injustice, so I guess I'll just live my life, right? And the, quest, the question is, if we make an ethical commitment, are we committed to not just addressing our personal behavior, but also in some ways to responding to the larger issues? And I think sometimes that more narrow sense of ethics as just following rules makes it harder to see those. So how do we, how do we work with all this? What I want to suggest, and again, I'm, I'm, what I'm uh, interested in is if we can see what calls us. Is there an edge in my own ethical practice? What calls me? It may be that I want to actually take the ethical precepts more seriously in my daily life. I want to remember the guidelines, maybe read them every morning for five minutes and have them influence my day. And that's my edge. Again, I'm not suggesting that we do everything. That never works. Okay. But doing one or two things with depth, that works. And so where is my own ethical edge? Maybe I'm already living with an ethical edge where I'm really committed to helping others and I make commitments to volunteer and so forth. And that maybe I'm living at my edge, but maybe we're not. And that's really why, partly why I'm offering this talk to energize all of us, including myself. Just to, because I think you know, I say this sometimes, that I don't just teach coming from a place where I've worked it out. You know? I often teach and later I say, you should listen, Donald, to what that guy said. <laughs> there are some good things, you know? And, and so uh, that's, that's important. We're all in this together, right? 
I'm not really, I'm not coming from a place where, okay, you know, you know preaching in the negative sense. <laughs> okay. So how to, how to do this? Um, so let me just ask, given what I've said, again, I'm going to use some inquiry questions just for yourself. And, you know, if, if, if writing and taking notes is helpful, by all means, do that. So, first question is, where is my own learning edge, or where might my own learning edge be in my ethical practice? Would it be more personal, more relational, more social? What calls me? Where is my own edge? Issues inquiring mind and war and peace, and the current war and peace or current inquiring mind, and the letters to the editor on the war and peace issue. Yeah. Where? Um, you know, I was I was actually asking just for a silent period now. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry, but we but let's bring that in later, okay? I was just asking people to reflect silently, and rather than to start discussing it. So sorry, I wasn't clear. Um, so let's just take another moment just to see where is my, where is my edge. And I'll do, I'll do that a few times. I'll ask some questions and we'll just work silently. And then we'll, in a short time we'll come back and be able to talk together. So, how to, how to work with one of the large issues if we feel called in that way. I think it's maybe just to take one concern. If you're drawn to respond to one of the large issues, it might just be to take one of them. And maybe inform yourself and see how you can respond. And there are, you know, there are different ways. And seeing, see if you can respond so it really becomes a practice. You know? And we, you know, I'm thinking out loud, but actually, it'd be great if we have a uh, if we had a group of people who were committed in this way. We used to have our our um, renewal of the ethical precepts once a month, and we used to talk to. Maybe we should revive that. I don't know how many would like to revive that. Okay, we okay. Well, there's how many would how many would like to revive it and be willing to come. <laughs> How many don't know exactly what that means? Yeah, yeah. We used to have at it used to be what was it at? It, it used to be at eight. Originally, it was at seven. I changed it to eight for to see if that would work better. And we would do it before, right before the class. We'd we'd meditate briefly. We'd renew the ethical precepts, and we'd have some discussion sometimes over breakfast together, and that was rich. But I was thinking that having small groups of people. Like I've done small groups sometimes where we focus on the ethical precepts and that sense of community really plays a big role in this, really can be very supportive. You know, I know there's a group at Green Gulch in Zen training called the Eco-Sattvas, <laughs> you know, who work together on ecological issues together and try to connect it with their practice. So I think that's very supportive, having group, have, not doing it on one's own. I think choosing, just choosing one edge and it might be personal. It might not be social at all. There's definitely times when we want to bring our attention primarily inward, and there are times when we bring it more outward. And that's very natural uh, to do that. Um, the role of intentions is quite important. It's to, to find uh, ways of supporting one's ethical practice, Having, working with intention like every morning can be very, very helpful. Or before you go into a difficult meeting, you say, I want to really practice skillful speech here. And you can remember what that means. And we often frame it as being truthful, being helpful, coming from a good heart, and having good timing all together. <laughs> okay. So we, I, I do that sometimes before meetings. I just remember those guidelines. 
that can be very helpful. So intention is a key part of ethical practice. There's also a wonderful place for inquiry, including talking about uh, issues uh, with people who have different views. That can be really interesting. See, am I attached to my ethical views? That's very interesting. And I thought of a few examples. Um, One of them was, um, before I came to California, I spent four years, uh, as I mentioned earlier, in Kentucky. I taught at the University of Kentucky. And one of the, area, one of the uh, classes I taught was ethics, actually. I taught ethics classes in the philosophy department, which were, was, was uh, at that time, there were requirements to meet the liberal arts degree where people either had to take two philosophy courses or two math courses. This ensured the in, you know, enrollment in the philosophy department for decades. <laughs> and it made room for me to be hired. <laughs> because the enrollment in ethics classes was very high. The downside of that is that no one was really interested in it. And, they <laughs> and I had to kind of convince them that this was actually a potentially interesting topic. And so one of the things that we did was we did take on difficult social issues. And we uh, talked about abortion, for example. We talked about issues where people had really diametrically opposed views. A lot of fundamentalists. And what we found that actually worked with them was that we emphasized less the, the answer or the right ethical position and more the process of inquiry done with respect for others. And they could really buy onto that, at least the people there. Not, every, course, not everyone does that. Uh, but the people there, they were able to do that. And, there were the, and that process of inquiry, I think, is a very crucial part of ethical practice. Inquiring, seeing where I'm caught, seeing where someone else's view just makes me tight and reactive. You know, and another practice I've sometimes done is, can I take a difference in views as a starting point for inquiry rather than a starting point for war? And that becomes very interesting. And the other example I was thinking of in my own experience was when I did a retreat with a number of people at Los Alamos National Laboratory. It was not organized by the laboratory. (laughs) It was organized by an interfaith group. And we went down there for five days, and they permitted us to uh, stay. And we actually did sitting meditation for most of the day they let us stay in the parking lots, in, in, in the Los Alamos laboratory parking lots, and they let, they let us have lunch in the uh, cafeteria. Uh, they did not permit us to use bathrooms. That was the arrangement. <laughs> the solution, we, we rented a large RV that had bathrooms and also provided shade. And during lunches, we would have talks with the scientists and technicians who were developing nuclear weapons. And it was an amazing aspect of inquiry just to talk, see where I get tight. Can I listen? Can I listen to them? Some of our group had a lot of trouble doing that. We would, it was a very interesting retreat because we would be silent practice, have lunch with the you know, in the laboratory, and then at, uh, in the evening we would have like a council around a campfire where we would talk about what happened during the day. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was very, very interesting. I, I wrote an article about that later in the uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship uh, Journal. So maybe I can, I should put all these things on my website so they're more accessible. Okay, I'll write that down. Website. Okay. Check. Um, so we can use inquiry as a wonderful way of deepening ethical practice, see what our views are. Um, one last uh, way to deepen ethical practice is to study the lives of ethical exemplars. Study the lives of people whom you consider to be living deep ethical lives, or in the past or in the present. I mean, just again, consider for a moment who comes to mind? And here I'll ask you, 
maybe just to consider for a moment, then actually name some names. Who are your ethical exemplars, people who you look to to know how to lead a deep ethical life? So just think for yourself for a moment. And then who comes to mind? And I'll, I'll repeat them. Who, who comes to mind? King. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Mother Teresa. Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama. My mom. Mom. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela. Who else? Maharshi Mahesh Yogi. Yeah. Thich Nhat Hanh. Thich Nhat Hanh. Mahar- Maharshi Mahesh Yoga. Yogi. 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 Anyone vote for the Buddha? (laughs) Gandhi. Gandhi, yeah. And if you could say in a word, what makes these beings exemplar? What would that word be? What makes them exemplary? They're unselfish. Unselfish, yeah. Inner and outer practice connected. Authenticity. Authenticity. Compassion. Courage. Courage, yeah. Compassion. Compassion, yeah. Thoughtful. Thoughtfulness, yeah. Wisdom. Wisdom. Stick to activity. Stick to activity. <laughs> Persistence. <laughs> But stick to it. Stick to it. Activity is better, <laughs> and, and may have its have had its only appearance in recorded history just at this very moment. <laughs> and so I think that can be a very important point uh, way to deepen ethical practice. Who to actually bring to mind people who are exemplary for you, study their lives, do it even on a daily or weekly basis. Yeah. So let me close, and then we'll have some time for talking, with uh, four questions. Some of this will cover some similar territory as we've done. Question number one. What feels like my own personal edge of learning and development in my ethical practice. And it can be personal, can be very personal, just about my own consciousness and behavior, can be in my relationships, direct relationships, and it can be related to a larger issue, social issue. Second question. What are the challenges or obstacles to me following this learning path? In other words, what gets in the way of me deepening my ethical practice. Then the third question, what will support my intention (coughs) to follow this learning edge? (coughs) What will support it? I could imagine all sorts of different things. Could be intention, remembering the ethical precepts, reading about exemplars, etc. What's going to, being with others in a community, what will support my 
following this learning edge for my ethical practice. And then last question, what would support this intention and be something I can do in the next 24 hours? In other words, what's the next step? Let me end here, and uh, thank you for really uh, joining in on this inquiry. I, I believe that people who combine, as I, as I often say, people who combine their ethical practice with inner looking and the skill that comes out of following this Dharma path have a very um, special role to play in the world and a vital role. So there's, it really is, um, can be something very, very important and promising. So thank you so much for your kind attention. And we have some time for uh, any questions, reflections of any kind. So Anne, let's use the microphone right now. And we can keep the questions on the recording. Any reflections, questions, uh, wish to say more about your ethical exemplar, about your mom or grandmother? That, that actually would, wouldn't it be beautiful if we just spent 20 minutes talking about the ethical exemplars and what they mean to us? I think that'd be quite beautiful, but no, no pressure. <laughs> okay, please, Adrian. And let's say her names. Uh, my name is Adrian, and uh, I thought of uh, Oscar Romero, who was the uh, Archbishop in San Salvador during the war, who was assassinated. And uh, uh, you know, I don't aspire to assassination or martyrdom, but I read his diary, and I f because when you really vet everybody, they've always they've all have wobbles and flaws and stuff, and I find that encouraging. Uh, and in his diary, I was impressed with how terrified he was. Mm. He knew all the time that he had he was going to be a target, and he every day he got up and said, "Geez, I'm really scared," and uh, but this is what I have to do. Mm. And so uh, I take hope from that. Mm. Um, yeah, thank you. Right, so this, um, you know, maybe for some of us, one of the obstacles is complacency or staying with comfort. And ethical inquiry is not easy. Like really deepening your inquiry is going to, that's why it's going to be both at times challenging, but also potentially tremendous learning. So thank you. I just want to add Pope Francis to the list of exemplars. Okay. Thank you. Hey, I'm Jane. Um, and the person that came to mind to me was Paul Farmer, who started mm. um, Partners in Health in, in Haiti. And mm. I really appreciate Adrian's comment of um, uh, the Archbishop Romero feeling the fear, it, it, it's the humanizing things when you read about these folks that makes it feel possible that you can work on it. Mm -hmm. uh, I suffer from, you know, sort of wanting to do things perfectly, and so it becomes overwhelming to mm -hmm. look at, oh my goodness, there are all these edges. Yeah. But just being able to sort of step back and, and um, looking at people with their foibles and with their faults yeah. and their process and the fact that, you know, 
things move in small ways sometimes is, is, right. is reassuring. And it is part of that, um, something we touched on yesterday, was the, the whole idea of faith. Yeah. That there is this faith in the human spirit mm -hmm. that um, makes it possible to make those hard jumps. Mm -hmm. I think that emphasis on small steps is really important. You know, I was just wanting, I, I didn't want to say things about, sometimes we contemplate the challenges of the larger social systems that can be, oh my God. You know, it can be overwhelming at times. And what I'm, uh, and, and maybe there's a time in which we really contemplate what's really there, where there can be some overwhelm. But what we're, what I'm really wanting to see is, um, are ways to really uh, take steps wherever wherever that step is. All we need to do is take the next step and see what see what calls. It may be that I spend the next year really working on skillful speech. That may call me. You know, it's really to see um, what's there. You know, I, again, I think of that beautiful comment. Uh, let's see. Um, so I'm blanking on the person's name. Who, 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 who was the African American minister and theologian? How, uh, Howard Thurman. I'm sorry, Howard Thurman, who near the end of his life was counseling the person who had been dedicated to trying to transform the society all his life. And then someone near the end of his life, a young man said, what should I do? And he actually said, this is paradoxical in light of what I've been saying, don't ask what the world needs, but ask what makes you come alive. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. That's why I think I was emphasizing, see what's there for you, not what you think should be there, but what really is authentically alive and sometimes it's very personal. I want to treat my cat better. And I'm not making fun of that. Uh, that came off a little... <laughs> came off as potentially trivial, but I don't want to really say that. I want to really uh, say that really to see where is my own... what calls me right now for my next step in being more fully ethical. And then just to follow the next step. And it may be something very ordinary, and and uh, I think that that's I think that's what Thurman was pointing to. See what really has life and authenticity. It doesn't have to be tackling some big thing. It doesn't be even it can be in uh, tension with what my you know, rational mind thinks. You should do this. You should do that. But really, what's there? What's there at a deeper level? Yeah, please. Um, what, you know, I was thinking what might be particularly interesting is to maybe to share some of what gets in the way of me taking my next steps and what are supports for me taking my next steps. Those are very important qualities to share. What, what occurs to people as something which gets in the way? You know, when I, when I wrote it down, because I was answering my own questions, uh, you know, some of the things I wrote down were busyness, getting distracted, right? Anyone relate to those? Okay. What, what else gets in the way of living, of taking your next step? Please. Uh, the two things that popped into my mind were laziness and fear. Mm -hmm. How many relate to those two? Okay. Yeah. And how what might support you to not have those really fully be obstacles? What might support you in that, uh, to work with those two qualities? Not, or you or anyone could, could answer that. What helps us work with laziness or fear? Anyone want to respond to that? Well, our new, fairly newly formed Kalyana Metta group mm -hmm. <clears throat> helps me with laziness yeah. because it keeps me focused, Great. which is very helpful. Great. And the fear part, I just have to do a lot of inside work, mm -hmm. a lot of questioning, Yeah. which I do because it's uncomfortable feeling fearful. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, the group or the community support... You know, it's like when we do retreats, 
everyone's going to meditate in the hall, and if I, on my own, wouldn't go near the hall at this particular time of the day, because everyone's going there, I go. <laughs> right? So group or community, friends can play a big role. Fear, there are a lot of ways of working with fear. Uh, metta, her loving kindness, is often seen as a direct antidote to fear. Right? That, that there are ways of shifting out of fear. You know, so we want to basically study fear, see what it's about, feel it, explore it with using our mindfulness. This is again where, where we have this uh, integrated path, ethical practice, mindfulness, wisdom practice, and we can look into fear. Jack Hornfield has a line, fear, when fear ari- arises, it's announcing where I'm going to learn next, where I'm going to grow next. Yeah. Other, other obstacles people want to name that get in the way of being fully ethical, or not fully ethical, but being uh, taking our next steps. Um, for me, it's um, disappointment, disappointment, discouragement from yeah. past efforts. Yeah. Yeah. Past efforts, maybe with larger issues. You mean? Uh, well, yeah. no. I guess in this case, um, well. To be specific, like volunteer experiences yeah. that um, that have been really difficult or inefficient or um, sort of had a failure mentoring somebody. Yeah. I mean, just to give it a little more context, um, and especially especially I think when it's not. It wasn't a failure on my part, but mm-hmm. the system just yeah. finally, it was just, it, so trying to figure out the next one after a few disappointments. So dealing, dealing with that disappointment, discouragement, and yeah. yeah, and so again, we can work with that, and, and that can also inform us. Maybe you want to, maybe you see clearly where that was problematic, and you look for that in your next possible uh, placement, and, and you really try to be clear that, that this is a better setup, right? So that could, that could be a way, but to really look at that, because we want to look at to what extent does discouragement lead to paralysis, right? It, you know, and how do, we, how do we learn from difficult experiences rather than let, let them get a, keep us uh, stuck, right? So maybe, yeah, Anita, please. Thanks. Um, I find working with fear uh, it very helpful to remember non-attachment to outcome. Yeah. That yeah. that helps a lot. <clears throat> yeah, that's a kind big of, one. Hit, kind of hits the paralysis and, yeah. and breaks it up to some extent. Yeah, so that's a large one in terms of ethical practice, not being attached to outcome. And and again, we'd have we actually would probably would take us quite a while to say what that means. I know because I, when I was doing the book, The Engaged Spiritual Life, my last chapter was on that theme. It was on the paradox that we keep on, you know, we have a deep commitment and in a sense we act and we let things be as they are. We don't try to control things too much, which is one meaning of non-attachment to outcome. So there's a commitment to the intention, the long-term intention but we might not be attached to how this meeting goes, or how this goes, or how this action goes, or even how this year goes, right? So that's a hard one. That's a very deep aspect of this. Um, so there's a lot here, isn't there? <laughs> um, let's, let's close. And thank you so much for um, being willing to be with this inquiry, you know. You come here, you're innocent, you don't know what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> you don't know where we'll go. It's, it's an act of faith and it's an act of um, uh, potential discouragement. <laughs> but, uh, but it also, I think, I think we trust each other, we have enough history so we know, okay, it might, we might go into some interesting territory. So. Uh, thank you for really staying with this. And let's just close by having a uh, 
short moment to reflect on out of all this, the different questions, you know, what one intention do you leave this morning with? And this is just for yourself. by uh, the very traditional practice called Dedication of Merit, where we offer the fruits of our morning to each other and then beyond the bounds of this hall out into the world for the benefit of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.